You're listening to Amplified, presented by Lurie Children's. Transcripts of this and all episodes can be found at luriechildrens.org forward slash amplified. During our last episode, our heroine, Katie Radosevich, received hearing aids at the age of two and a half years old. It might seem that hearing aids would be the end of this story, but truthfully, they're often just the beginning for a family with a child with a hearing loss. And a large part of that is going to school. Most students in the United States spend almost 9,000 hours of their life between elementary and middle school alone. That's a lot of time for listening and learning to go on to high school and beyond. When Katie received her hearing loss diagnosis and hearing aids, Rudy and Eileen decided that they wanted Katie to use their home language, spoken English, in order to communicate. So at age three, she went off to preschool. You have a toddler at home who has these new hearing aids, and then she goes to preschool. You got her in preschool right away. Right away. They, uh, the, our school district had, we had to wait until she was three. Her birthday September 10th. So as soon as she, she was three, we had it all set up, and she uh, attended a, the speech and hearing preschool, and two teachers, 10 children. It was the most amazing just to see the progress that it, that happened from uh, September 10th to the end of that first year was but, just oh, was amazing. But even her classmates, they were mostly boys and speech delayed. So there was another, not another hearing impaired kid, I don't think, in your the early years of speech and language preschool. And I remember Miss Marva would come with the bus and stop little the little bus and stop at the end of the driveway and Katie would climb on the bus because she wasn't big enough to walk <laughs> up the stairs with her little knapsack on, wave to us, and she was off with Miss Marva all day with these teachers. And I think they did some wonderful things with the speech therapy aspect of it so that Katie's um, speech patterns developed, which sounded like speech patterns out of the majority of kids as opposed to speech patterns coming out of someone with a profound hearing loss who hasn't heard things correctly. Katie had none of that, and I attribute a lot of that to the speech and language preschool, speech and hearing preschool she went to as a a toddler. Was it hard to see her get on a bus at such a young age? I, I, I can't imagine. I wanted, I, I, was, I, w- I wanted to get in the car and follow it. <laughs> but, um, she, and said she would scream, I'll make good choices <laughs> at three. But, um, but they, they just took such good care of, of you and your you know, three-year-old classmates. It was fabulous. And these two teachers just said, give her to us. We yeah. just, this is what we are here for. This is, this is you know, just so wonderful that we can start from the, and for the, for at that time, three was the was the youngest they would take um, kids, but maybe they're doing it even younger now, which mm-hmm. would be wonderful. Yeah, I think you guys touch on a lot about um, you know just early intervention, starting with that newborn hearing screening and being able to catch these kids earlier, because then of course we can start speech therapy day one when those hearing aids are put on too, that can also happen at six weeks, you know, two months, yes. which is so cool um, because I think that my journey was kind of an anomaly compared to what we really hope to be able to do for these kids now. Um, that a kid who was diagnosed with a moderately severe hearing loss like myself, 
you know, we can intervene so much faster too and just provide those services in the home. And so by the time they're three, they would have already gone through potentially a couple years of therapy. So maybe they can start in a preschool program more caught up to their peers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because now a child with a, a diagnosis at age two and a half is concerning because the standards have improved. And I think it is amazing of the strides Katie made in such a short period of time. Um, you know, we don't know. I know you don't know what caused her hearing loss. Uh, she was exposed to aminoglycosides as a newborn. Um, but we don't know, you know, was it there all along? Did it progress? And we'll never know. But you did the right thing when you found out. Because a lot of times it doesn't matter what caused it. It matters what you do about it. Right. Aminoglycosides are a type of antibiotic commonly administered in suspected or confirmed cases of sepsis or meningitis in newborns and infants. Katie also received aminoglycosides as a newborn. Aminoglycosides are necessary and effective, but are now known to sometimes cause hearing loss. Risk of developing a hearing loss has been linked to several factors at birth, including low birth weight, prematurity, and fetal infections like cytomegalovirus, or CMV, to just name a few. There are actually so many risk factors for hearing loss in infancy, the topic has a governing body called the Joint Committee on Infant Hearing. This group regularly reviews the science surrounding best practice for early detection and intervention of hearing loss and guidelines for high-risk monitoring. And I also think it's so, you know, looking at pictures of myself wearing hearing aids at four and five, these hearing aids are like as big as my head, right? And they're beige and they're not terribly attractive, right? And so I do think we've come such a long way in terms of technology too, um, that hearing aids are now Bluetooth compatible. Parents can have apps on their phone with a Find My Hearing Aid tracker you know, we can pick out pretty much any color under the sun for hearing aids and ear molds. And just if, if that's what a parent chooses to do, I think there's so much more availability for parent involvement um, rather than 30 years ago, just kind of showing up to an appointment. Okay, these are the hearing aids. There's not a lot of discussion of these are the different brands we work with. And, and so I do think that also allows parents to have more ownership too, especially with a young child because it is going to take some time for that child to be able to put those hearing aids in themselves um, and really kind of take off. And I do think also you can potentially struggle with a kiddo who's just not interested in wearing their hearing aids. And that can be a big challenge. And I think that can make families feel really isolated too, that we're trying to do everything we can. But when you have a fierce one-year-old, two-year-old who can just pull these hearing aids out, I think being able to at least pick a color they like or, you know, just trying to make some part of it just more exciting for them. It's been so cool to see that, mm -hmm. you know, that progression as well. Yeah, there's a there's a true pediatric culture around hearing loss. It was, I think for a long time, it was just about adults with hearing loss and oh, yes, and then there are some kids that we're going to treat like small adults, but that's not the case. Really, they need their own culture and lifestyle and community because it's not just this individual who needs the help. It's also their family and caregivers and school is so much part of it. 
let's talk about what it was like to have a child in special education, to have that label, because I think it's a label that a lot of families struggle with. I was thrilled, and it didn't even, to me, that was, that to me, it was fabulous that this this preschool existed, and uh, from that point on, Katie continued on with her peers into elementary school and, and had services, but she was, um, there was no such, to me, there was no such uh, negative connotation to her having the services and the, but the, the preschool was considered special ed, but I was thrilled that it existed. And it's interesting you say that because uh, down the line, her sister was in second grade and still wasn't reading. And her, uh, I've just been working so hard with her, and her um, teacher called me one day, and she was, and I knew her teacher well, and she was so apprehensive in how she was approaching this conversation that she was eventually leading to that there was a special program for Julie to be uh part of that she they could help her with her reading and I said to her teacher I said are you worried that I'm gonna think that this somehow labels Julie and she said well you would be surprised at how parents are upset and I said oh my gosh I'm thrilled that there is a she won't work with me but maybe she'll really be helped by this and it was sure enough within weeks it was like somebody had switched on a light bulb and she was reading away and now she teaches English and, That's and, incredible. And, and has and reads, you know, four books at a time. So But at the same at the same time, the the connotation of your kids in special ed, they take the short bus. I mean all of that stigmatic stuff is there. Um and we didn't we were so delighted that the services were there that we were overjoyed about it, but the and again, this is 25 years ago. The stigma of special ed. My kid is in special ed. And as opposed to now, my daughter has a 504 or my daughter has an IEP. We can talk about what those are, um, which are special ed programs. But sure, that, that stigma was there. It wasn't really discussed because no one would talk about that way with us. But, you know, just think about growing up, you know, he takes the short bus. She's, she's in special ed. There must be something wrong. No, there's not something wrong. They need additional services. They need an individualized educational program for them. And this is how we get there. But yeah, I get watching others and the conversation we had with, with our middle daughter's second grade teachers is, a perfect example of people are, are feel that I know that can't be my kid. There can't be anything wrong with my kid. My kid is not special ed. Well, maybe your kid does need a little assistance. And to get this assistance, this is how the state sets up these programs so that you can get it. Did Katie have a IEP or a 504? In- she had an IEP. Okay. And then moving through all through elementary school IEP. And Correct. then we moved her into uh, high school and she went to Bennett. Uh, which is Catholic high school. Of course, she's not going to get an IEP there. And at, by the time she got into Bennett, I then bought an F. She had an FM system. 
Um, again, it's a antiquated technology versus what kids have today. But we bought an FM system that she brought to school at Bennett and used for about a week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, but even those adaptive services, because the, the type of adaptive services that a hearing impaired kid needs from the school's perspective are, are not difficult. You know, they not, not really. They need speech therapy. So you get a speech therapist there, a hearing itinerant teacher to kind of track them along, some preferential seating in the classroom, and maybe an FM system. And uh, Katie had a wonderful experience with one of her teachers early on who uh, was wearing the FM system. And Katie, you want to tell that story? Or? <laughs> sure. So <laughs> I was in second grade. Um, and to kind of um, start off before we talk about that, there was actually one other um, little girl in our neighborhood who uh, also had a hearing loss. And so while we didn't know a ton of kids who had hearing loss, it, we were very fortunate that there was someone down the street, um, Stephanie, who had hearing aids as well. And she and I, were our birthdays were five days apart. So it was really awesome. And of course, from the school's perspective, like, okay, well, let's just put them in the same classroom. They both use the same FM system. You need the, you know, similar services. Um, and so we were in the second grade together and our teacher, uh, went stepped outside and went to use the restroom. That's when you found out how good the range was on these <laughs> FM systems. <clears throat> even even then, you know, and so, you know, Stephanie and I are kind of giving each other little glances across the room, like, oh, are you hearing this? Yeah, I'm hearing it too. And um, our teacher comes back in and then very quickly looks at me or looks at Stephanie, you know, and just realizes what's just happened and <laughs> You know, it kind of gives us a look and, you know, we kind of just move on. But it was, um, yeah, you know, just stuff like that. And I think it was great, though, that I had that classmate who I could, like, experience school with a hearing loss. You know, we became fast friends and we were friends for a long time. Um, and then, you know, I think you start to grow up and have different interests. So by the time we got to middle school, we just had, you know, different things that we were excited about. But especially early on, that was so huge for me and huge for our family too, because I feel like Stephanie and I hung out a lot. Um, and so that was awesome to have that friendship that then transferred into the school system too, especially with the FM system. You know, like my dad mentioned, FM systems are so much more conspicuous now, you know, and so I used to have to wear a big black loop around my neck that connected to this box that I wore on my, you know, my pants. Um, and so it was, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of great ways to kind of make that look very dressy. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but I also was the kid who wore overalls, you know, and, and I didn't care. So, you know, it kind of fit my personality anyway, but it is, you know, just nice again to have that kind of that friendship and that relationship of trust with someone else and it was great you know with listening checks and if we needed to make sure equipment was working okay having this other person in the classroom too was just really just nice and kind of took the load off a little bit uh, but yes I will admit by the time I was 15 I was very over wearing an FM system it's, it's tough once you you know get to an early you know a later part of your <laughs> academic career but you know I also think that we've just seen how successful these kids are now with FM systems too, which is great. Were there ever any challenges with Katie's services 
uh, before she hit high school? You know, were, was there ever any issues of them thinking she didn't need them? Oh, yes. There okay. was, in one year in particular, I think it was either fourth or fifth grade, still at the elementary school. And, of course, Katie, even it by then, we, we had always worked along with her because um, she had advocates, and we were her advocate, but we wanted her to become her own advocate. That was That's the whole goal with uh, not just her hearing loss, just in in her her social life, her life outside the house. And, um, and so she was very capable and the, uh, the district uh, higher ups came and said, oh, you know, I don't think she needs this anymore. And we were, we were in her IEP meeting at the time and everybody else in the room looked at this person and said, oh, absolutely not. And of course, Katie's dad was very vocal about absolutely not. <laughs> and, and I think that was really the only time we were, we were faced with the possibility that we, that we really had to speak up. What was the rationale for thinking she didn't need it? What because, data because did they she have? Was not really data. Him looking at Katie in the room watching her, watching her interact, listening to her speech patterns. I thought, she doesn't need anything anymore. And everybody else in the room said, what is the matter with you? (laughs) She's doing so well because she's getting these assisted services and she's going to keep getting them right. And he goes, and he basically said, "Um, yes, yes, right. Right, I think that's always such a backwards logic when, when parents hear that because they observe them using this and think, Oh, they probably don't need it, but they're using it at the time of the observation. Correct. <laughs> That's absolutely correct. Well, correct. good for you for speaking up. And it was great there was a Every, team of people. Yes, and everybody, to speak on, on everybody on Katie's team was was of of a single mind that she's doing extremely well, and she did extremely well, and in large part based on the assisted services she was getting and we're not going to take those away and just see well can you do it on your own no no that's not a conversation i do think a big part of my success early on too was like how we talked about that self-advocacy um that you know i feel like yes fourth and fifth grade i was sitting there in the iep as well um and that um i think was really good for me too to be able to be involved um, at an early age and it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't, oh, you, you must come to this. I wanted to do that. Um, you know, and, and be part of that as well. So that was really, I felt, um, very included, which is, you know, I think also what kids want too. They just want to feel included, whether it's with their peers or with adults, you know, so I did feel included in that respect. And that was, um, I do remember that as well, just feeling very, grown up and um you know just being able to take ownership of what's going well and and you know what the next school year was going to bring katie when did you start um interviewing the teachers that you had from year to year that I, was maybe middle school you yeah started doing i would it yourself? say i would say middle school and then by the time i got to um high school um as my dad mentioned there wasn't an iep in place anymore and so it was more just kind of like an informal session i believe freshman year was really kind of the only year that we did that um because once i stopped using the fm system it wasn't (laughs) there wasn't a lot more to talk about (laughs) um 
but I do feel like, yeah, I would say, you know, I was 12, 13, 14, starting to really kind of in service teachers as well. And that was really great because that allowed me to get to know them and then and them get to know me more on a personal level too, to be able to put it all together. But I have heard some horror stories along the way. I, I volunteer for an organization called Equip for Equality that assists parents in navigating through the IEP process and the 504 process and I'm an intake volunteer and I talk to the parents about what the issues are that they're experiencing with their son or daughter. And um, we were fortunate because Naperville has a very supportive um, special education program um, and it's, it's a relatively affluent community, particularly if you get into communities that don't have the real estate tax base that other schools other communities do and don't have as much money available, the expenditure becomes a significant influence, significant problem for the school district. And it's not that they don't want to supply the services, it's that they're trying to figure out how to do it and it becomes a struggle between parent and organization, but they just need to stay on it. Absolutely. Katie, how was it transitioning from the public school system where you had a support, an FM system, a hearing itinerant to a, a private high school where you know you you had your own FM system that you brought that you, we now know you didn't use, but <laughs> but beyond that, you know, all of a sudden you had dropped all the support you previously had. What was that like? Sure. So I think that um, the transition I was very excited about because I think just because of my personality, the alternative to going to Bennett was going to the public high school where I would have graduated with a thousand other kids in my class. And that just wasn't the right fit for me at the time. So I was really looking forward to going to a smaller school. Um, And I also think because I had been the girl with hearing aids for the last 14 years, it was nice to kind of get a fresh start because most of my classmates, you know, did not go to Bennett with me. Um, And so there was just a small handful that were making the transition. And so I think it just kind of allowed me to kind of start over. And I even remembered thinking like, am I gonna go by Katie or am I gonna go by Kate? Like, what am I gonna do? (laughs) And I don't think it was necessarily my hearing loss, but I think it was just, I was just ready for a change. I think in terms of the support services, I was very fortunate that I grew up, you know, in a very just supportive environment. I felt that I wasn't concerned about my speech being unintelligible. I knew how to fix my hearing aids if something broke. And so I think that, and also knowing the class sizes were smaller at Bennett too, I just didn't feel like I was walking into this unknown territory in terms of my hearing loss. And I also think because my hearing loss was never something that I truly felt I like labeled me or anything like that, that going to Bennett was more because I was excited to try something new at 15. You were ready. Yeah. And you had the foundation laid early on. Yeah. And, And because I did have those services for so long, you know, that they really set me up for success inside and outside the classroom. So with me today is Jen Haney, and I'm going to let her introduce herself because she is such a 
a unique resume that she brings to our team. Go ahead, Jen. Thanks, Katie. Um, So I am the education liaison for the cochlear implant team here at Lurie Children's Hospital. Um, My role here is really to communicate with families to ensure that their child's educational programming is appropriate and work with schools to ensure that they are meeting the needs of children with cochlear implants. So my background is in deaf education. Um, I have had the opportunity to work in an auditory oral school. I um, was also a hearing itinerant for many years, and I also had an early childhood total communication, deaf and hard of hearing um, classroom as well. Um, in addition to working here at Lurie, I also have a private early intervention practice where I specialize in working with families of children birth to three, teaching parents how to work with their newly diagnosed child with hearing loss. That's amazing. You really, you're really like the Haley's Comet of like early intervention <laughs> providers. Because I feel like people like you don't come around that often. And then we are so lucky to have you here at Lurie Children's. Um, so the first thing I, I want to just go over and kind of get out of the way is some of the terminology, because I think that's something that people hear these terms and they've heard of them, but they need clarification or reminder. So the big one is what is the difference between an IEP and a 504? That is a great question. So an IEP is an individualized education plan for a child with really any identified disability. And with the IEP, it provides a variety of services for a child so that they're able to access the general education curriculum. And through that, many times there are a variety of service providers, including a teacher of the deaf or a hearing itinerant that will work on goals that are specifically related to the child's needs. There are specific accommodations and modifications that are made um, for ensuring that children have optimal access in the classroom, as well as testing accommodations. So those are things that are really included in the IEP. The 504 is a little bit different in the sense that um, it falls under ADA or Americans with Disabilities Act, and that really allows the child access environmentally to everything that they would require from a hearing standpoint. So this would be something like basic accommodations such as preferential seating, use of an FM system, a note taker, closed captioning, things like that versus needing that direct instruction from a specialized teacher of the deaf or hearing itinerant where they're working on meeting goals. So so that's kind of uh, the biggest way that the two are different. Okay. That, and I honestly, I still feel I, I sometimes need to review those terms as much as I use them and I hear about them because you want a child to get the right, to have the right type of services, Absolutely. whether which one it is. And, you know, the, the Radosevichs have acknowledged of they live in an area with great resources that they took advantage of. What advice would you give to a family, though, that say is from a smaller community, maybe a more rural area where they don't have all the resources just built in? How do they advocate for themselves? 
that's it's tough. Um, so some of these smaller districts, unfortunately, don't have these types of staff members already on hand since um, hearing loss is such a low incidence disability. So um, some things that I encourage families to do is before their child turns three, really reaching out to the school district in preparation um, to let them know that your child has hearing loss and is going to require special services so that the school district is prepared to take on the child when um, they get into the school district. Also, a lot of it is parent-driven research, you know, um, what types of programs are available in the area, uh, is there specialized programming for children with hearing loss that could be available not necessarily within the school district but close to them? Does the school district um, have a cooperative that they work with that outsources professionals that have background in hearing loss? Um, so those are all kind of things I, I help navigate um, for some of these families. And also a lot of times these families unfortunately then have to seek outside therapies um, because sometimes the schools don't provide the service um, even though they should be. So just navigating that as well can be tough. Have you seen families be successful when they end up moving, they find a, a, a program that's outside of their school district has that worked out for a lot of families, even if they have to travel a little further? Yes. Um, the nice thing that an IEP affords to these students is transportation. In many cases, these deaf and hard of hearing programs are housed outside of the school district, which makes it difficult on families, especially with other kids, to be able to drop them to and from school when the school's quite a far distance. So um, a lot of our um, students do take a bus to and from school that the IEP, it's written into the IEP so that parents don't have to worry about that. And what can I or any other clinician do to help these families who are trying to advocate? What's, you know, the best type of documentation or language we can provide? I think providing a summary of Obviously, the most recent audiology report is always kind of a starting point because that's the documentation that's required to move forward in the evaluation process. Also, uh, just providing families with just basic resources on how to get either um, referred to early intervention or referred to the school district to get the evaluation process started on their end. And, you know, Katie discussed that she did in-services for teachers when she was in school. Can you talk more about that? And do you think this is a useful tool for kids to do? Yes. And so this is actually a large part of my role um, because we do have so many patients here that um, are in private schools or don't necessarily need ongoing support by a teacher of the deaf. And so a lot of what I do is go into schools and teach mainstream teachers about the accommodations necessary to ensure that these kiddos are, you know, uh, have access to the general education. And when these um, students get older, they then are able to kind of talk about their own hearing loss. They're able to talk about what accommodations they personally need, things that they find helpful in the classroom, barriers that they come up against, um, 
you know, sometimes too, they want to be inconspicuous as they get older. And so kind of just, you know, talking to their teacher about how can we set up a a system between the two of us where it doesn't make it obvious that I didn't hear you. So as these kids get older, it really empowers them to talk about their own hearing loss, um, how they identify. And then also another nice thing that I do here is I go into classrooms and I in-service the classroom sometimes. So I go in and I talk about the child's hearing loss to their peers and different ways that they can be a good friend to their peers and get any questions out of the way that these, you know, little ones have about, you know, cochlear implants and exactly how that works. And kids just have such interesting questions that (laughs) us as adults would never think about. And so sometimes to just get that out in the open really sets, you know, a positive precedence moving forward so that the child doesn't get bullied or ask uncomfortable questions um, and things like that. And and I know right now we're talking a lot about school age children, but you talked about your, you know, you work with a lot of children in the birth to three area, which I also think that's fascinating. I feel a lot of the therapy you do, though, you are in so many ways helping families communicate with their child. And what, uh, you know, it's hard to boil down everything into like a a one minute segment of what you provide. But what is kind of like the best general advice you can do about communicating with a little one to promote positive speech and language development? And, And I mean this question really to anyone, like any parent, because I think we don't even realize the impact we're having when we're around these uh, around these babies of how much they're absorbing all the time. Absolutely. So um, the first thing that I always recommend is use of amplification during all waking hours. I mean, this is the basic foundation. And if your child is getting access to the sound that they need, that's obviously going to promote understanding and expression of language. I also think it's really important for them to kind of tune into their baby. So looking at what they're interested in and kind of following their lead. Because a lot of times if it's our agenda and what we want to do, they tune out if that's not something they're interested in. So like I said, following the child's lead, um, talk, talk, talk. So using really short, meaningful sentences and using that throughout the routine of your day so that every time, you know, um, you're changing your baby's diaper, you're using a lot of that same language so that those connections are being made. So that repetition just over and over. And then reading your baby's cues. So a lot of times, you know, They're really trying to communicate with you, whether it be nonverbal or through their babble. And so many times it's easy to miss those those cues. And that's great advice for any parent of a young child. Oh, yeah. Connecting and following and following their lead. And every baby does that at some point. And we live in such a noisy world in society now that I think it's it is so simple, though those types of interactions, what a positive impact it makes on these little ones. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, it it just goes to show that really children are absorbing everything around them all the time. And so they watch what you do. Um, So if you're sweeping the floor, you know, and then a couple weeks later, they want a broom to do the same thing. You never had to teach them how to sweep. They just kind of looked at you and, and learned those skills. And so it really is amazing just how much they're taking in and as a parent to really be cognizant of that. They are amazing. You know, Eileen and Rudy said they were fortunate because Katie was one who just took to her hearing aids right away. They were able to put them in and, and she did not fight them. But unfortunately, that's not the case as you and I both know. What's your quick advice you would give for a new hearing aid user who is struggling, which is completely age appropriate with keeping the hearing aids in the ears. That happens very often. So I would just say keep at it, be consistent, have a routine. We don't expect these kiddos to be wearing their amplification right off the bat from the time they wake up till the time they go to sleep. We understand that when we newly dispense equipment that it's going to take time for these these kiddos to get used to it, but really consistency, having a routine, taking the recommendations of things that either the therapist or the audiologist recommend, things like, you know, utilizing a pilot cap to keep them from pulling out the aids or utilizing toupee tape to keep the aids behind the ear, singing a song while you put in the aids or the cochlear implant on every morning, just taking advantage and and at least trying some of these strategies before kind of saying that they're not going to be successful. What's the most uh, unique or interesting way you've seen a parent try to build consistent hearing aid use? Have you ever just been working with a child and a parent did something and you're like, oh, I never thought about that before? Yes, I had one um, family that the ear molds kept falling out. And as many of you know, the ear mold process, it takes quite a while for them to come in sometimes. And so these, these babies, you know, have grown out of them. So I had one family actually use Band-Aids and they... They taped the ear molds (laughs) into the ear. um, And that worked? You know what? It did. And I thought that it was a really creative idea to keep the ear molds in until they were able to get new ones. That is a great idea. I guess it would seal it, too. Yeah. See? We learn all the time. (laughs) Give us your ideas. We need them, people. (laughs) Well, you know, is there... Anything else you wanted to to comment on after listening to episode two about their school journey? The best advice I think I could give to a family is it truly is a journey and there's going to be hurdles and bumps along the way and you're constantly going to be learning something new as your child grows and and gets older. But my best advice would would be to kind of roll with those punches and embrace each step of the way because throughout it, you know, your child is growing and you're you're learning with them. And so give yourself a little grace. Don't be so hard on yourself because in most cases, you have never had a child with hearing loss before. And so you guys are all learning together. I think that's great. That's beautiful. Well, thank you, Jen, for listening with me today. Thanks for having me. 
even though we all spend a significant amount of our childhood attending school, we are not simply defined by our education. It's time to hear more about who Katie is as a whole person. Next time on Amplified. Thanks for listening. Amplified, presented by Lurie Children's, was created by me, Katie Colella. Music by Les FM. Artwork by Katrina Graggiolo. Special thanks to Jamie Budzik, Lisa Weber, Joy Ringer, Jen Haney, Danielle Lee, and of course, the Radosevich and Farnsworth families. If you need resources regarding childhood hearing loss, go to lurichildrens.org forward slash audiology dash resources. Transcripts of all episodes are available at lurichildrens.org forward slash amplify. Learn more about Katie and the incredible Division of Rehabilitation Services on Instagram at Lurie Rehab Services. That's at L-U-R-I-E Rehab Services. 